Daniel, Daniel Schantz is a writer, and anytime he writes something, whether it's a magazine or a book, I make time to read it. Anytime he talks, I listen, because I always learn something from it. For a number of years, he was a professor at one of our Bible colleges. Well, one day, I heard Daniel talking about his uncle, Uncle John. His Uncle John was a soldier in World War II. He's stationed in the Philippines. The fighting there was hard, and the conditions were just miserable, in fact. In fact, at one point, he'd gone a whole month without a chance of taking a bath. Every day, crawling around in the muddy trenches, always with the same uniform on. He'd already lost his shoes, and the one pair of socks he had had become so rotten, they'd literally rotted off his feet. And for weeks, all he had to eat were just a few pieces of cold spam, and that was never enough to satisfy the hunger. I mean, the conditions there were just terrible, and it was hard not to get discouraged. But one day, there was a break in the battle, and Uncle John had a chance to crawl out of that muddy hole and go back to the base camp for a little R&R, go back and see if there's been any mail, any word from home. And much to his delight, he discovered on that very day he'd received a care package from his home church. So he was excited. Man, they sent me something. I wonder what it is. You know, he's hoping for some candy or maybe a good book to read, a, a few cards and letters from his friends and loved ones back home just to kind of catch, catch him up on the news. Man, I'm excited. I got a gift from home. I wonder what's inside. But he opened up the box and he was disappointed because there was only one thing inside the box, a beautiful necktie. Now, why would you send a gift like that? Why would you send a necktie to a soldier on a battlefield? Uncle John was puzzled by this. In fact, that day he wrote in his diary, here I am in the muddy trenches of the Philippines with no shoes to wear and nothing decent to eat. But now because of what I've received, I'm the only soldier in my whole battalion who has a necktie to wear. Like, what good is that going to do him? Now, I'm sure Uncle John appreciated the thought, hey, at least they're thinking about me. They haven't forgotten about me. But what good is a necktie for a soldier fighting in a battle zone? I'm sure everybody here has had a similar experience. Maybe it was a gift exchange at the office or a Christmas party at school, or maybe one day you received a package in the mail from a relative that you hadn't heard of in years, and they sent me a gift? Wow, I wonder what this is. I can't wait to open it up and see what's inside. And yet you open it up, and it's not anything you need. I mean, it's nice that they were thinking of you and they were willing to give you something, but when you open it up, that gift is not anything you're ever going to be able to use. So what do you do? You toss it in the closet and you forget all about it. Well, that's not the kind of gift that we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about Jesus. And he is God's gift to us. He is the greatest gift that has ever been given because he is the gift that we all need. And this verse that we're going to look at and study today, John chapter 1, verse 14, this verse explains why that is so. Now, before we actually read the verse, I, I, I want to kind of set things up, kind of set the stage for what we're about to learn. So listen to this, this true story. Grandpa comes home one day and he finds himself immediately, he comes home and he finds himself in a dilemma. Grandpa, walk, Grandpa walks through the front door and he can hear his grandson, little Jeffrey, he's crying. So he comes into the family room, there's a little boy standing in the playpen and he looks pitiful. I mean, he's wearing a t-shirt and diapers. His face is red, tear-stained. It's obvious that Jeffrey's been crying for quite a while. He's in a really tough situation. But when Jeffrey spots Grandpa, man, his face just lights up. Now there's hope. <laughs> With his chubby little hands, he reaches up and he begins to plead, Out, Papa, out! Out, Papa, out! Well, how can Papa resist? 
So Grandpa sets his briefcase down, and he immediately walks over to the playpen so he can rescue his grandson, so he can set him free from his captivity. But that's when Mom walks into the room, Miss Law and Order. She comes out of the kitchen with a dish towel in her hands and in a stern voice. She says, no, Jeffrey, no, you're being punished. You have to stay in bed. Dad, help me out here. Just leave him alone. Now, what is Grandpa supposed to do? His grandson is crying. His little buddy, his little pal. It's obvious that he's suffering. I mean, those tears, they are just tearing Grandpa's heart apart. And yet at the same time, Grandpa loves his daughter. He is so proud of her and how she's raising this boy. And, and he doesn't want to interfere with the mom's discipline with her child. So here's Grandpa. Emotionally, he's going through this tug of war. What is he supposed to do? I mean, does he just turn around and walk away and, and feel like a bum because he's abandoning his little buddy? He's, he's betraying his little pal. And yet at the same time, he doesn't want to betray his daughter either. What is Grandpa supposed to do? Here was his solution. If I can't take Jeffrey out of the playpen, then I'm going to climb into the playpen with him. <laughs> little buddy, if you have to be punished, if you have to serve the sentence, then I'm going to serve it with you. And he climbs inside. And all of a sudden, with big, jolly grandpa now sitting in his pack and play, little Jeffrey's not crying anymore. Now, that's not a perfect analogy, but in a small way, that story, that true story, of what Grandpa did for little Jeffrey is a, is a picture of what Jesus did for us at Christmas. Do you understand, do you really appreciate the dilemma that God was in, that he was facing? I mean, God loves us, and he would love, nothing more that he would love to do than just pick us up and draw us near and deliver us from all our troubles, but he couldn't. You see, here's the problem. He's holy, we are not the Bible makes this clear all the way through Scripture. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13 says, Your eyes are too pure to look on that which is evil. You cannot tolerate that which is wrong. Psalm 5, verse 4 says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you the wicked cannot dwell. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2 says, Because of our sins, because of the wrong that we have done, our sins have separated us from God. It has caused God to turn His face away. God is infinitely holy, which means he cannot ignore our sin. He can't just shrug his shoulders and pretend like nothing wrong has been done. No, that sin has to be dealt with. But though God is infinitely holy, he is also at the same time infinitely loving. He has compassion for us, real compassion. I mean, he yearns for us to be together. I mean, it's the whole reason why he made us in the first place. He wants to share life with us. He does not want us to be apart. So he's holy and he has to deal with the sin, but he's also loving and he wants nothing more than to save sinners. So what is a holy and loving God supposed to do? Here's his answer. John 1.14. And the word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. He climbs into our playpen, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, no one else like Jesus. There was no one else who could pull this off. There was no one else who could have provided this kind of a rescue. And get this, he came from the Father. The Father's in on this too, and he's full of grace and truth. You see, God knew we'd never be good enough. We'd never be able to measure up to his standards. We'd never be able to climb up to him. So he comes down to us. 
But when he comes here, he comes here not to serve the sentence with us. He comes here to serve the sentence for us. Jesus comes to our house to fix things and make things right so that one day he can bring us to his house. So that one day he can bring us to a new heavens and a new earth. Now, how exactly does that happen? Well, let's take a deeper look at this verse. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, The Word became flesh. We're talking about Jesus. Why is he identified like this? Why does the Bible call Jesus the Word? Because it is God's desire. It is his very nature to want to talk, to want to communicate, to want to make himself known. He doesn't want to be distant. He doesn't want to be a stranger to us. He wants to connect. He wants to relate. He wants to be close. He wants to do life with us. Well, that's easier said than done. Let me illustrate. Let's say one day I volunteer to be a part of the team that we have here at church to drive the church bus. You know, on Sunday mornings, there's a group of men who help pick up families and they, and they bring in the church. And I volunteer to be a part of that team, to take my turn. Well, some of these families I've never met before. And so that day when it comes to be my turn to drive the bus, uh, I'm heading out north of Weistown. There's a family up there north of Weistown and they've got bunches of kids. And as I'm driving out, I've never met this family before, and I'm, I'm driving out there to pick them up. I, I learned, there was a phone call earlier that morning, I learned that mom and dad were sick, but all the kids still want to come. So I pull up in front of the house, and all the boys and girls come running out the door, and they hop on the bus, and then I pull off, and I head off to the next destination. Well, as I'm driving, you know, I'm, I'm really concentrating, first time driving the church bus, want to make sure I keep everybody safe here. But as I'm driving down the road, I look up in the rearview mirror, and the youngest boy in that family, just three years old, He's still standing in the aisle. He hasn't taken a seat. So I yelled to the back, hey, you got to sit down. You can't stand up while the bus is driving. And the little boy just stands there and stares at me. He makes no response at all. Well, I get a little firmer and I yell a little louder. Hey, I'm really serious about this. You have to sit down. It's the rules. You can't stand in the aisle. Now, please take a seat. And the little boy just stands there and stares at me. He's not making any response. It's like he's ignoring me. Well, I'm starting to get a little stirred up. I pull the bus off to the side of the road and stop, and I get out of my seat because I'm going to exert a little discipline. We're not going to have any rebellion on this bus. I'm going to keep everything under control. And as I get ready to charge to the back of the bus, that's when his older sister speaks up and says, Mr., Mr., you don't understand. My little brother's deaf. He can't hear you. Wow. That changes everything. The little guy, he's not being belligerent. He just couldn't hear and this is his first time on the bus. He doesn't know the rules. He's not trying to cause any problems. So I pause for a moment, and I begin to think, man, my heart's just melting on the inside. I'm thinking, what do I do? How do I help out? So I go to the back of the bus, and I scoop up the little boy, and I set him on my lap because I really want to connect with him. I want his ride on this bus to be a positive experience. But that's when I realize, how am I going to communicate to him? He's deaf. I can't just talk to him. Oh, I'll use sign language. But I don't know sign language, and neither does he. Okay, I'll, I'll write him a note. But he's three years old. He can't read. And now I realize, though my heart is good, and I desperately want to connect with this little boy, I don't know how to communicate to him. How am I going to build a bridge from my heart to his? That's the kind of challenge God was facing. He's God. We're not. I mean, we're in a different, he's in a, a whole different category. We're two different kinds of beings. So how are we going to connect? How are we going to communicate? How are we ever going to get close to each other? Well, here's his answer, John 1.14. 
and the Word became flesh. Now appreciate what we're reading. See, in the Old Testament, God would show up. God would make His presence known. But most of the time, when God did that in the Old Testament, He did it in big and terrifying ways. Like with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, when God appears as a smoking furnace. I mean, it's obvious, it's clear, He's on the scene, but it's kind of scary, too. Or in the book of Genesis, or a book of Exodus, once again, there's God in the midst of his people as a giant pillar of fire, leading his people safely across the desert. Again, it's clear, God is here, but he's here in kind of an intimidating kind of way. But now this time, with Jesus, God takes a different approach. He comes in a much softer, much more gentle way. God becomes a baby. Think about this. Anybody can hold a baby. Anybody can pick up that child. And when you pick up that child, it's just like an instinct. You find yourself, as you're holding that child, you just want to be close. You want to kiss them. You want to hug them. And the babies love that. They always respond. They're always open to that. They cling to you as you cling to them. You see, by God becoming a baby, here's God making himself approachable. He's making it really easy for us to get close to him. But that's only part of the story. Notice what the next part of the verse teaches. The word Jesus became flesh. Jesus becomes a human being. He becomes one of us. Now get this. And he made his dwelling. Literally it says, and he pitched his tent. He builds a tabernacle, a tent, right there in the center of our camp. And he made his dwelling among us. The Apostle John is deliberately borrowing words. He is making a reference back to the book of Exodus. You remember Exodus, the book of Exodus? You know, uh, and, and one of the things to notice about Exodus is how God put that book together, the order in which everything is written. Just the way that book is set up, just the way that book is structured, it tells you something. See, when I think of the book of Exodus, I think about the Ten Commandments. But that's Exodus chapter 20. And there are 19 chapters before you ever get to chapter 20. And it's what happens in those previous 19 chapters that makes all the difference in the world in how you're going to see and hear and read and understand those Ten Commandments. Chapters 1 to 19 of the book of Exodus is all about deliverance. It's all about salvation. It's all about how God brought his people out of bondage. It's all about how God parted the waters of the Red Sea so he could set his people free. Chapters 1 to 19 of Exodus is all about the grace of God. Do you remember how God himself summed it up? Exodus chapter 19 and verse 4. God said, I brought you out of Egypt on the wings of eagles. Meaning there's no way you could have gotten out of that place by yourself. Only God could save. Only God could rescue. And now that you've been saved, now that you've been rescued, now we come to chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments, the law. See, grace comes first and then the law, which shows us the law was never intended to be a means of salvation. No, now that they've been saved and rescued, now they come to Mount Sinai, and now they have this privilege, now that they've been set free, now they have this privilege of entering into a covenant with God, to enter into a new life, a new relationship with Him, which means those Ten Commandments, they're simply God's light, His instructions, His directions on, here's how you enjoy that new life with God, and here's how you're going to get along with each other so you can be God's new community, God's Israel. You see how the order in which things are written is so important? But there's something else, too. You see, there's a third major section to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapters 25 to 40. And in those 15 chapters, what do we read? Well, in great detail, God lays out the blueprints for the tabernacle, his tent. 
See, everybody else is living in a tent, and God wants to live in the midst of his people, so God needs a tent too. In other words, he saved them, so now he could live with them. And you remember how he said that? Exodus chapter 29, he said, I brought you out of Egypt so that I might dwell among you. The same exact words that we have here. You see, God doesn't want us to do life by ourselves. He wants to be more than just our creator and more than just our redeemer. He also wants to be our friend, our divine friend. God wants to be in our midst every day to share life with us. Well, John 1.14, here's God doing that. But now he's doing it in a much more intimate way than what he did back in the book of Exodus. Think of it like this. Because he's God, that means he knows everything, right? God's omniscient. There's nothing in the universe. There's no piece of information, no fact, no statistic that he's not already acquainted with. How many hairs in your head? He knows that. How many times a day have you had to change your baby's diaper? He knows that too. But now, now that the word becomes flesh, now that Jesus becomes a human being, not only does Jesus know all those facts, now he experiences them too. Do you see the difference? Now, not only does he know how many hairs are on your head and how many hairs are on my head, but now he knows from personal experience what it feels like to have your hair ripped out. Now he not only knows what a challenge it is being a mother because over the years he's seen so many moms change so many diapers, but now because Jesus has been an infant himself, he knows from personal experience that how helpless you feel if, if somebody's not holding on to you, uh, then as a baby, you can't stand up on your own. You're just going to fall, and there's nothing you can do to prevent it. Now he knows from personal experience because he's been that baby that as much as you like to drink that milk, there's going to be times you can't keep it down. There's going to be times when you just vomit, and you vomit at the most inconvenient and inappropriate times. And now he knows from personal experience because he's been a baby, there's no way you can control your bowels. So throughout the day, you're going to constantly soil your diaper and create this stinking mess. And you're going to need somebody else to come along and clean up that mess for you because you could never do it for yourself. Jesus has had to live through every one of those very humbling experiences. The God who made the world has now experienced the world. And here's why that's so important to know. Because never again can you say or can I say, well, God doesn't understand. I don't think he has any clue what I'm going through. Not so. John 1.14 says, God has been in every place you have been. Have you ever been lonely? So has he. Have you ever been betrayed? So has he. Has, have you ever been destitute? So has he. Have you ever had to face the agonies of death? So has he. So no matter what kind of trial you're going through right now, that means not only does Jesus have the power, but he also has the knowledge, the insight, the understanding, the empathy to know exactly how to comfort and strengthen and bring you through that trial because he's been in that place too. Many years ago, Phoenix, Arizona, there was this man named Harry, and he ran this small appliance store. And Harry knew that any time a customer came into a store, no matter how friendly he was, no matter how many questions he tried to answer, that that young couple, before they made a purchase, they were probably going to go down the street to the much bigger, much larger discount store and check out the appliances there. Harry knew that. So knowing that, whenever a customer would come to a store, Harry would make this offer. Hey, I know you're looking for the best deal you can find. I get that. I understand. I'd, I'd be doing the same thing myself. So I know before you buy an appliance here, you're probably going to want to go down to Discount Dan's 
that big appliance store down the street and check out the appliance there. And you should. You, you need to compare prices. You need to be a good shopper. Again, I do the same thing myself. But here's what I want you to know. After you've been in both of these stores, that big store and this little one, here's what you need to know. If you buy an appliance from Discount Dan's, you're going to get a good machine. I know that because I sell the same appliances here. These are great machines. So if you buy it from Discount Dan's, you're getting something really good. But if you buy an appliance from this store, you're going to get something here you won't get down there. You're not just buying appliance, you're going to get me. I come with a deal. I stand behind what I sell. I mean, I've been running this business for more than 30 years. I learned it from my dad, and one day I'm going to turn it over to my daughter and my son-in-law. This is always going to be a family operation, and this is always going to be the policy. When you buy an appliance here, you get me with a deal, which means 10 years from now if that machine breaks down, I'm going to be there and fix it for you. And if I can't fix it, I'll replace it. I want you to be happy with what you buy. So when you purchase an appliance in this store, you don't just buy the appliance. You get me with a deal. And then Harry would smile, and then he'd pick up a quart of homemade ice cream, put it in their hands, and send them out the door. <laughs> well, as they're walking out the door with Harry's speech ringing in their ears and a tub of homemade ice cream in their hands, who do you think they're going to choose to do business with? That's the promise God's making here in John 1.14. See, when God says, he doesn't just hand us a package. Here it is. Here's the gift of salvation. Now go in peace. Be well. No, now that you got that package, man, you got it made. Your sins are forgiven. The books are clear. Your name's now written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your future is secure, so uh, nice doing business with you. I hope the rest of your life turns out okay, and you never see him and make contact with him again. No! God didn't come here just to make some kind of deal for us. God comes with the deal. He wants to be more than just our Savior. He wants to be our friend, our always forever divine friend. I mean, the whole reason he says this is so that now he can live with us. The one who's full of grace and truth wants to spend the rest of our days and the rest of our eternity walking side by side with us so that every moment of every day he can continue to share that grace and truth with us. Let's pray. God, we are here today to worship Jesus. We are here today to recognize that he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And Lord, we want him. We want him to be with us. God, we are here today to humble ourselves, to just open our hearts and surrender ourselves to you because, Lord, we want our hearts, our hearts to become your home. So, Lord, come and dwell with us. God, come and abide with us today. And we pray for this in Jesus' name.